0: Welcome to The Lawyer's Podcast, a series of conversations about law practice. Each week, we talk with legal entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are your hosts.
1: Hey, I'm Sam Glover.
0: That was very informal. (laughs) I'm trying a new thing. (laughs) And I'm Aaron Street and this is episode 240 of the Lawyerist podcast part of the Legal Talk Network. Today we're talking with Professor Larry Lessig about law and context. That is very conceptual. It is going to be a fun conversation
1: and I'm excited to bring it to you. And I didn't really know how to sum it up in a better way than law that. and context is our topic. Yeah, that know, is so strange. Just listen. I'm excited. <laughs> Well, before we get there, today's podcast is brought to you by Text Expander, Ruby Receptionist, and Podium. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support on either law or context. So stay
0: tuned. We'll tell you more about them later on. What's funny about this intro starting out so casual is that I'm fucking pumped yeah. that next week is when our book comes out. Yeah. Yeah, five this, days. Is not, this is not a casual thing at all.
1: No, in five days, you can buy the small firm roadmap in paperback or kindle if you already ordered the kindle it'll just show up on your device i guess
0: yes and if we're timing the project management of this right hopefully also audible audiobook will be available on launch day too it might be a few days later we'll see
1: yeah it's gonna be cool
0: yeah we are super excited to get it out into the world we've been working on it for a really long time and even before that have spent years wishing there were something like this in the marketplace for small firm lawyers to use as a manual for how to build practices of the future I
1: feel feel like the book is kind of the answer, like to the questions everybody has been asking us for the last decade plus, like here it is. Here is the answer. Here's what we think about law practice. Here's how to build a successful law practice. Here's the roadmap to doing it, obviously, which is why we called
0: it that. It's the answer. Yes, it is very much our manifesto and we're really excited to get it into your hands and to the hands of the law firms that need it. So starting on Tuesday, September 10th, we would really appreciate it if you would buy a copy. And if you like it, rate it in Amazon. And if you love it, let us know. Shoot us an email with a testimonial, and we'll probably feature it on the website. Share it with your friends. Tell your bar association. If you know a law professor who teaches a practice class, get it in their classroom, whatever the, it takes. All the stuff. Yeah. <laughs> this is the time. Host an audiobook listening party. Is that a thing? That's Maybe it should a be a thing. We'll start it. Yeah.
1: All right. That'll be a thing. Yeah. It's going to be great. Check it out. The early feedback we've been getting from people who have review copies, like our Labsters, have been really positive, and I think you're going to
0: like it. So... So get it. Yes. Anything else? No, like seriously.
1: (laughs) Period. Now we've got a brief sponsored conversation with Joseph Jenkins from Podium and then my conversation with Larry Lessig. And I feel like I've kind of undersold it in this intro because I have been such a fan of Larry Lessig since, I don't know, like I was a boing boing reader in law school, I think, and I encountered his TED talk through that or something and his work on law as code. I had to reschedule his first interview because I was so nervous and I wasn't prepared. And this more than probably any other podcast we've done was one that I was just so excited and pumped going into it. So I'm really excited to bring this to you and I hope it lives up to the hype I've now given it.
2: This is Joseph Jenkins at Podium. We work with over 400 law firms in the US, Canada, and Australia and 40,000 businesses across the US in helping them drive leads and growth for their firms and businesses.
1: Welcome back. And so last time we talked about some of that stuff, and we wanted to get into it deeper today. I think you mentioned that you do something like 20 or 30 online marketing audits for law firms every day. And I bet you've seen some changes over time in how people find lawyers. So how have you seen that client journey change
2: over time? Yeah, and it's changed even more. Frankly, in the last 18 months, we've seen a huge inflection point. Really? Yeah, it's been twofold. We've seen a drastic increase in consumers desire for convenience. So we see law firms investing more and more in convenient opportunities for the client to reach out. Because if you think about today's consumer, they can swipe right for a date, they can watch TV on demand through Netflix or Hulu. They fast forward commercials on Dish, they stream music live through Spotify and Pandora, they get rides on demand through Uber and Lyft. And shoot, we can even order sandwiches to our door now through DoorDash, right? And so, because that is consumer preference and consumer want nowadays, law firms are enlisting more and more ways for consumers to conveniently reach out to them. And again, we see a, certainly a, a healthy investment in advertising, but we tend not to trust ads as much as we used to anymore. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite quotes—you'll uh, laugh at this—but it says, "Don't trust everything you read on the internet." And the quote's by Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> it was several right. years ago, but it's funny—it's just the opposite's happening. A study came out just this week that says 87% of consumers trust Google. Views, as much as a friend or family recommendation.
1: That resonates with me. And one of the things that I would want to look for is that convenience piece, right? Like if I'm hiring a contractor, I would love to know in advance that I don't have to try and schedule a freaking phone call and that they'll just text <laughs> with me.
2: Yeah, there's nothing more soul crushing than sitting in traffic, waiting in line or being on hold. Yeah. And <laughs> most cases, those are the only options law firms give for a consumer to reach out. It's drive to me, call me and be on hold and talk to, you know, a receptionist that may or may not be located at my law firm, that may or may not be able to pronounce your name precisely. And in the end, we want to just talk to an attorney or someone who's a professional that can help us with our need. For sure. And so yeah, to your point, texting is by far one of the fastest growing trends we see.
1: So in light of this move towards or need or desire for convenience, how do you see firms needing to adapt to those changes?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. When you think about again, all the channels that are available to consumers, they're going to go where they will. Mm-hmm. You have to be equipped and you have to be ready to capture those leads no matter where they're reaching out through. So is it Facebook Messenger? Is it the new texting feature through Instagram? Google Maps has a message this business button that a lot of law firms don't know exists. <laughs> and those leads are going into cyberspace. Apple business chat is a thing. Chat from your website, contact us forms, voicemails. How are you scaling and ensuring that all of those leads are coming into ideally a single place where your intake team can run with those leads? Or are Are we having a delay or missing those leads entirely that's what we're looking to help other people fix
1: gotcha so listeners if you'd like to learn more about reputation building online about driving more leads and working with podium visit podium.com slash podcast that's podium.com slash podcast and you can find the link in our show notes joseph thank you so much for being with us today
2: my pleasure
3: Hi, this is Larry Lessig. I'm a professor of law at Harvard. And I've been doing a lot of work uh, activism, really, around democracy recently. And I had done a ton of work around the internet and copyright in a lifetime before.
1: I think you probably could have stopped after I've done a lot of work. I've been a fan of yours since probably around the time of your original TED talk on Law is Code, but I was reviewing your Wikipedia page in preparation for this podcast, and I sort of gave up on noting all of the boards you are on and the organizations you serve on and things like that. It feels like there are basically two phases to your work which you covered, and the first was sort of internet activism, intellectual property, and culture. As you sit here today, how do you think about that piece of work?
3: Well, you know, actually, there's three stages to my work, which is relevant because the book that I hope we're going to get a chance to talk about is really from the first stage. Yeah. But, you know, the first stage of my work was about constitutional theory. I did a lot of work in the former Soviet republics in Eastern Europe after the fall of the wall, and I did a lot of work about our own American constitution, and That work was driving me to understand what in the context made constitutional law possible. And when the Internet came along, it seemed to me there was the same question that we should ask about law as it affects the Internet by thinking about the technical context. Like, so what's the way in which the infrastructure or the architecture of the Internet either enables certain freedoms or takes away certain opportunities. And that's what began my work really as an academic about the Internet. But then I quickly began to feel like a lawyer with a guilty conscience because I felt like (laughs) the lawyers, you know, we lawyers were, you know, racing to court to regulate the Internet in ways which I thought could defeat some of its most important potential. And that's where I really became, began to be an activist for the first time as it related to copyright and fair use in the context of the internet.
1: I guess it feels like listening to you there, there is kind of a common thread between all of your work, which is sort of maybe law in context. And then you can't really separate law from the context and that we should probably do a better job of thinking about the contexts in thinking about law and making law and things like
3: that. I think that's a really great way to put it. And yeah, that's exactly right. Because, you know, if you want to figure out how to protect the law from the changing context, you know, so how do you want to protect the values of free speech as the architecture of the Internet changes. You've got to have a, an approach or an ability to think between those two perspectives, the kind of stuff in the foreground and, and what we take for granted in the background. So I think that's a nice way to think it through.
1: When you were working on internet activism and intellectual property and things like that, you, I guess I alluded to it, but it was this concept of law as code. And I hope that isn't a new idea that software code and legal code have some things in common. I hope that's not a new concept to our audience at this point, but maybe it is. And maybe you could sum up, well, what were you talking about then? And and how do you think about that today? Is that still a useful construction for us?
3: I think it's even more important today. You know, when I started doing the work around the internet and writing about this, there was this idea pressed by, you know, really beautiful romantic souls like John Perry Barlow, that, you know, somehow the internet was going to guarantee its own utopia, Hmm. that, you know, it was a place the government couldn't regulate, where free speech and community and privacy would live. And, you know, he has this wonderful romantic declaration of independence of in <laughs> cyberspace, where he like, you know, articulates this romantic vision of somehow we've now escaped the, uh, you know, material world and we live in this virtual world and the virtual world will be wonderful. And I remember I had, you know, physical, real face-to-face debates with him at the Kennedy School. And I said, you know, all of these features of the internet are just a function of its architecture. Mm -hmm. And its architecture could change. You know, the architecture that now enables free speech or protects privacy could be an architecture that disables free speech or, you know, constantly surveils you in everything you do. And, you know, Barlow, you know, was a smart guy. He got the point. But I think that it was, you know, it was this point of recognition that we need to think about the way the infrastructure complements or competes With the values we think are important Mm -hmm. and if it's going to undermine the values we think of as important then we got to find ways to protect those values whether that's through law or you know by making sure the internet the architecture doesn't do it i remember when i you know i was making this argument it seemed to me pretty obvious i was i was struck that it didn't seem to others to be as obvious it's this really wonderful (laughs) review by david pogue of my first book, The Code and Other Laws of Cyberspace, in the New York Times in January 2000, where he says, I just pulled it up, he says, quote, Lessig plays digital Cassandra. He predicts the internet will become a monster that tracks our every move, but that nobody will heed his warning. He says, these discussions are thoughtful and measured, but the premise that frames them is shaky. Lessig doesn't offer much proof that a Soviet-style loss of privacy and freedom is on the way, Unlike actual law, internet software has no capacity to punish, doesn't affect people who aren't online, and only a tiny minority of the world population is. And if you don't like the internet system, you can always flip off the modem which of course is ambiguous between giving it the finger and just turning <laughs> off the modem but you know How so
1: vindicated do you feel today
3: <laughs> right, well, I'm like don't not happy about you know yeah. the, the fact that digital Cassandra like the reg- regular Cassandra is right. Do
1: you want to drop your mic now and <laughs>
3: <laughs> but but you know that's oh, the man. point like you know here we have an infrastructure that we still call the internet. But it's radically different from the Internet's architecture circa 1995. Yeah. And the difference is precisely its capacity to perpetually surveil us. And, you know, we kind of wake up to it too late, I fear.
1: Well, and I guess in the wake of this weekend's atrocities, 8chan has become kind of front page news or has at least gotten some highlighting. And, you know, that was the great experiment in in radical free speech. And it basically means hate speech and porn, which is an interesting kind of utopia, I guess. But
3: Yeah. And this is a part, you know, and I feel guilty about this part as well. You know, in the old days, we used to talk about how wonderful it was going to be to live in a world without censors. Mm hmm. But another way to talk about censors is to call them editors. you know right. <laughs> What if we live in a world without editors? That's the world we live in. And, you know, in many ways, that's a good thing, because decent people with great ideas who wouldn't have their ideas published before, you know, now have a chance to get their ideas published. But the other thing that does is it enables, you know, these extremists or crazies to rally the world in a way that I don't think we ever were sufficiently fearful of in the old days of Internet utopianism.
1: It kind of feels like this conversation comes up a lot in free speech conversations, which is the difference between, you know, freedom freedom from consequences is different from freedom of speech. And I feel like maybe that's I don't know, maybe that's relevant to this idea of censors and editors. There are some things that, are, that you get to say that are you can say them, but we also get to condemn you for them, and we don't have to publish them. And it feels like Twitter, for example, and Facebook are in the struggle of deciding how to draw those lines.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it's exactly right that one should not confuse free speech with the freedom to be free from consequences for your speech. But again, the architecture itself enables many to escape the consequences of their free speech. You know, if you lived in a small town and, you know, if you lived in a small town and you walked around talking about, you know, how great Nazis are, mm-hmm. you would be punished and you'd be punished Because you can't escape the punishment of people around you. Uh, You know, when we read about the classic First Amendment cases of the Nazis marching in Skokie, you know, those people felt the consequences of what they were doing. For sure. And the ambiguity here is that often free speech theorists, for good reason, are worried that the consequences of saying unpopular ideas will stifle people from saying unpopular uh, but true ideas. I mean, you know, John Mill, John Stuart Mill, thought that, you know, the most important constraint on free speech was just the social norms of people in English society, you know, who would, you know, sneer if you said something that wasn't considered appropriate or correct. So, so the point is, it's not easy. But, you know, I think that what we've discovered is that the infrastructure has created a much more difficult regulatory problem Then existed in the days when, you know, these problems took care of themselves because people faced real consequences for hateful or damaging speech.
1: Exploring the intended and unintended consequences of infrastructure, when you say it that way, it makes me feel like you're... Shift to focus on political reform as opposed to, say, intellectual property reform, is really just a shift in focus. Um, not, or, or maybe it, but the context is similar. You're still looking at the infrastructure of our our law and our code and the way that it's having some consequences. And I was just watching your talk on tweetism, where you start with the Hong Kong. And again, now here we are in current events again. But um, you talk about the way that the Hong Kong constitution is structured so that Beijing basically maintains control. And that felt like and your energy in that in that talk made it feel like maybe that's at least a piece of the root of your frustration with where we are. And maybe you can describe that in a better way than I just did.
3: Yes, I think that You know, I've got another book coming out in the fall called uh, They Don't Represent Us. And one part of it is trying to find what we could think of as the core structural problem with our present representative democracy. And the core structural problem, I think, is the fact that the system is unrepresentative. It's unrepresentative in many ways. So money in politics is just the most obvious way in which it's unrepresentative. So the idea of Tweedism is, Boss Tweed used to say, I don't care who does the electing as long as I get to do the nominating. yeah. And when you think about it, you can see exactly the power that Boss Tweed had. If everybody knew they needed Boss Tweed's approval in order to be a candidate, then everybody knows what they've got to say to be a candidate. That's the same dynamic in the race for the governor of uh, Hong Kong, he or she, says so she right now, but he or she knows that you've got to please Beijing or the people who will represent Beijing. That's a kind of tweetism. In America, you know, the tweetism is funders of campaigns. You know that the only way you get to be a credible candidate is to raise ungodly amounts of money. And the way you raise ungodly amounts of money in America today is you suck up to the tiniest fraction of the 1%. So you know they they're kind of the pre-clearance for candidates to be able to be candidates, and obviously just like with Boss Tweed or just like with China and Hong Kong, what that means is the funders of campaigns have enormous power relative to the rest of America, and you know I think that that power means on this dimension they're unrepresentative because of that unequal power.
1: So as I was watching your talk, I feel myself pushing back, right? I'm resisting because I want to believe that no 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 no, we can create a movement and it get things done. Look at civil rights, um, look at voting rights. And I think, you know, then you then you throw up a slide that says when you when you control for for the variables, public opinion has no impact on anything. The only thing that has an impact is what do the 1% think. And so it makes me think, well, maybe the way the reason civil rights worked is because eventually the 1% got persuaded and and then they pushed for it. Is that really what happens? Like if I want to start a social movement, I should be focusing on the 1%, not politicians?
3: Well, I mean, I think it's two, there are two points there. We're got to keep separate. So the first point is you're exactly right. If you look historically, uh, it's pretty hard to see how ordinary citizens have had an independent effect on policy. Uh, The real effect on policy has come from the elite, economic elite, Mm -hmm. and that's troubling in a democracy because a democracy is supposed to be tracking what ordinary citizens think. And and I would say that's a lot because of the unrepresentativeness of the democracy. But then you say, well, what's the mechanism for changing that? What's the way in which that gets changed? And I do actually think a critical part of this change will depend upon really the super rich standing up and saying, we want a system where we have as much power as the ordinary American does. Which, means,
1: which feels laughable when you say it that way.
3: Yeah, but we want a system where we have much less power. And so, you know, I think that there's a chance they could, you know, we've we've talked about strategies to rally sufficient resources from Mm -hmm. the, you know, top 50 billionaires or something to be able to change the system. And and you actually think about the mechanisms of change. I'm more optimistic now about the potential than I've been ever in the, you know, I've been in this fight now for almost a dozen years. And the reason for that is if you You know, you look at what happened in the House of Representatives this year where the House passed this bill, H.R. 1. H.R. 1 was the most ambitious reform package that the House of Representatives has passed since the Voting Rights Act in 1965. Mm. So it had public funding for congressional campaigns, had gerrymandering reform, it had a promise to... Restore the Voting Rights Act and to deal with voting suppression, it had a really powerful revolving door limitation. And more importantly, by calling it HR one, what the House was saying is we realize we need to fix this democracy first. Now, of course, it passed and it went to the legislative graveyard, uh, overseen by the Dark Lord Mitch McConnell. Mm-hmm. But the idea that you know we've begun to uh, crystallize the notion of fundamental reform first has enormous potential because you know we've seen now seven presidential candidates who've said they will make democracy reform the first thing they do.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Now we're trying to get them to, you know, articulate what the elements of that reform would be so that they, you know, could actually be useful. But I think that the challenge, the real challenge is to get someone elected with that commitment. And if we do, then I think there's a real chance we get something really fundamental and important past. You know, real chance means 20%, not 2%. But still, <laughs> gotcha. it's something to fight for.
1: I have to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, but it feels like you've just teed us up to talk about your book, Fidelity and Constraint. And so that's what I want to do after the break. We'll be right back. Drip, drip drip hear that it's your office's online reviews kind of slow huh not exactly the gush of praise you're hoping for when you set up your account on that review site but why after all your best clients love you they say it all the time just not online and that's too bad because your word may be your bond but your clients words well they're your best sales tool and these days a star rating can make the difference between very interested and running for the hills Podium knows how important reviews are to your law office. That's why they built a great online review platform, making it simpler than ever to get a five-star rating you know you deserve. Businesses see an average 6% increase in revenue from reviews thanks to Podium. More than just a friendly reminder, Podium sends clients straight to the review sites you care about most with built-in analytics to monitor your progress towards meeting your next goal. So you could keep waiting for reviews to drip in, or you could open the floodgates with Podium. Just visit podium.com slash lawyerist to save 10% when you sign up. That's podium.com slash lawyerist to get started and save 10%. Podium, become the number one law office online. Unlock your productivity with Text Expander. Easily insert text snippets in any application from a library of content created by you and your team while reducing errors. You can save so much time, it's like getting an extra employee. Text Expander is available for Mac, Windows, iPhone, and iPad, and Chrome. Show listeners get 20% off their first year. Visit TextExpander.com slash podcast to learn more about TextExpander. There's more to answering a phone call than just pronouncing your name correctly. And I think that's what sets Ruby apart from all the other receptionist services out there. I've been lucky enough to meet a lot of people who work at Ruby, and from top to bottom, it's full of the kind of people you'd love to spend time with. I guess it's something in the coffee they serve. And after all, when someone calls your firm, that means they are going to be spending time with your receptionist. You may think you get to make a first impression when you pick up the phone, but that's not how it works. Maybe your receptionist is just on the call for a minute or two, but that's all it takes to form a first impression. So it's a good idea to make sure your receptionist is the kind of person you'd want your callers to spend time with. It could be the difference between a big case and a big fail. Don't worry, Ruby can handle pronouncing your name right. They'll also help you make a great first impression. And now Ruby can even help you connect with clients right on your website with 24-7 live online chat. You can find out more about Ruby receptionists and how to make a great first impression at callruby.com slash Okay, we're back. So, Professor Lessig, your book, Fidelity and Constraint, kind of feels like your effort to think through the mechanics of what you just talked about, how do we actually enact fundamental reform? Am I right about that or am I off base? Okay,
3: wait, you've put together two books. So, so the book that's coming out in the fall, they don't represent us. That's what that book is about. Yep. The book, Fidelity and Constraint is, you know, the constitutional law book, which is about the history of how our constitution has been interpreted.
1: But it kind of felt like it may have spun out of your thinking through like, how do amendments happen? And how would the Supreme Court approach its decision making on something like that? I guess I thought I was feeling you thinking through how the movement might play out, at least in the beginning pages of the book.
3: It's true. That's right. I And I think that, you know, one of the challenges, so this book this you know, was literally a book I've been working on for 25 years. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I needed to get it out before, the Supreme Court changed <laughs> because, you know, it tells a story, really a kind of hopeful story about how the Supreme Court has done its work over the past 200 and yes. the relevant year to start thinking about as 1803. So, you know, 220 some years. And, you know, and I see that history as kind of a dance between two kinds of fidelity. One is a fidelity to the meaning of the Constitution and another is a fidelity to the role of the court. So, you know, the court's always trying to do what it thinks is the best way to preserve the meaning of the Constitution, even in chained circumstances. So it has to translate the Constitution to the current context to, to preserve that meaning. But subject to a real constraint, which is that the court is constantly fearful of weakening its own power by being seen as too political. And that dynamic, I think, you know, explains most of the important decisions in the history of the court. But it's also a dynamic I'm kind of fearful might disappear because I fear that we see courts embracing their political uh, character much more openly or much more willingly. And if they do that, then, um, then you know, everything hopeful about this book turns out not to be so hopeful after all.
1: Well, can we take those two in turn, like the model of fidelity and constraint, how does that play out? And, and maybe even with an example where we can see the court struggling with this. And actually, before we even get to that, like this is descriptive, right? You're you're going back and looking at the Supreme Court's jurisprudence, and you're assuming that the judges are trying to make good decisions, and you're trying to find the variables, the levers that get pulled, whether or not the court realizes they're pulling them, and that help us describe how they make decisions, right?
3: Yes, that's right. It's descriptive, but I think that you know when we try to tell a story about the theory of how the court has interpreted the Constitution, we want to tell a story that explains as much of the history as it can, so that's fit, but also can be justified. So when you stand back and you say, "Well, here's what they're doing," is this the sort of thing we want a court to be doing? Mm-hmm. It's only justified if you got a good reason to say that yes, this is what they ought to be doing. So here's a, here's you know the couple really obvious examples, but here's one that I think is particularly salient given you know, what the court might now do. You know, obviously, when the court decided Roe versus Wade, it was a surprisingly, you know, strong majority, seven to two. But that decision created enormous political opposition, kind of drove the development of the conservative party, Mm -hmm. conservative movements. And obviously, by the late 1970s and early 1980s, the Republican Party had embraced the idea of overturning Roe versus Wade. So, you know, what we saw throughout the 1980s was President Reagan and then President Bush appointing people who most people were pretty convinced would vote to overturn Roe versus Wade. And so the party said, we're going to elect presidents who will nominate people who will overturn Roe versus Wade. And, you know, though they weren't that crass, when they actually got around to appointing somebody, everybody was always looking in the background for the tea leaves to suggest that's exactly how they would vote. So when the Supreme Court got to decide the case of Casey, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, 1992, there was a expectation of most people that that would be the end of Roe versus Wade. Mm. But if you remember, there was an extraordinary opinion written by uh, a joint opinion written by Justices O'Connor, uh, Kennedy, and Souter. And Justice O'Connor Kennedy and Souter basically said, look, you know, whatever problems we might have had with Roe originally, what we gotta worry about now is what will it mean for us to overturn Roe as the consequence of a political campaign to basically appoint justices who will overturn Roe. And what they what they said is, look, we only sustain our institutional authority if people believe we are making decisions for the right reasons. And the right reasons is not caving into political pressure. It's reasons about interpreting the Constitution. So what's striking about that is I think two, maybe three, but at least two of those three justices would not have voted for Roe, you know, originally. So their view of fidelity to meaning was that Roe was not correct. Mm-hmm. But their view of fidelity to role was it was inappropriate to overturn Roe as the consequence of this political campaign because it undermined the power or the position of the court. so their fidelity to meaning conflicted with fidelity to role, and for these three justices at least the more important uh, commitment was to fidelity to role.
1: Hmm, That's really interesting. And it kind of sums up the Scalia quote that you threw in there somewhere, which is, I'm an originalist, but I'm not a
3: nut. That's a great, (laughs) yeah, I mean, that was a brilliant way that he put it, although many of his originalist decisions were kind of nutty, but but (laughs) I think that, but that's exactly right. You know, this is the constraint. You can't be a nut or the court can't seem like a nut or it can't seem crazy. And so it's got to do what it can to keep the commitment to the Constitution alive. But it needs to recognize at a certain point that uh, the constraints of nutness are real and it will constrain what it's possible able to do.
1: Does your work on the book help you predict cases like between the time you finished writing the book and submitted the manuscript until now? Have you tried to predict outcomes based on this? And how are you
3: doing? I, you know, I haven't tried to predict, you know, that's the safer way to play mm-hmm. this game. <laughs> but, but I do think that, you know, you can see certain cases differently once you see it like this. So, mm-hmm. you know, for example, many people in my field of like political reform were extremely disappointed that the Supreme Court did not strike down partisan gerrymandering. Right. And when you look at that decision, Elena Kagan's dissent is brilliant. I think she's exactly right about what the meaning of equality is is as it applies to political gerrymandering, same thing with free association. And and the meaning, the fidelity to meaning analysis would say political gerrymandering has got to end. But what Chief Justice Roberts was saying was, look, there's no clear rule here. Mm-hmm. There's no line that, you know, like one person, one vote, which we could apply in a relatively mechanical way. So what that means is there'll always be this kind of judgment. And the problem with judgment about political districting is that people will always view a result that goes against their party as a partisan result, right? So, you know, in the next uh, 20 years, we're going to have 100, you know, districting plans. Um, of those 100 districting plans, probably 60 to 75 will be Republican districting plans, because those are Republican states, this rule was, you know, going to, it wasn't a very fundamental restraint on partisan gerrymandering. It was only restricting the extremes. Mm -hmm. A small proportion of those 60 states would be struck down. The vast majority would be upheld. So here you would have a Republican court upholding the vast majority of districting plans by Republican legislatures. How would the press read that? The press would say, well, what do you expect? It's a bunch of Republicans doing what Republicans right. want them to do. So you can understand how Chief Justice Roberts just did not want to get the court into a place where it is consistently being read as making decisions for purely partisan reasons, which which I think is the only or ultimate justification that allowed him to say, okay, we're just not going to take on this jurisprudence. And so that's consistent with the framing. Like that's a fidelity to role constraint um, that steers him away from enforcing what he thinks of as the meaning of the Constitution. But when he does that, I think what he's doing is trying to preserve the ultimate institutional integrity of the court.
1: So when you say that this might all change, when you say that going forward, courts may become increasingly politicized, what would that look like and what would that mean for your model? I mean, how? Well, <laughs>
3: yeah, you know, if people like Justice, you know, I think Chief Justice Roberts, I, I could name like three very important cases where he's played this game. And, you know, I'm sure there are many more. I've just not focused enough to see if people like Roberts disappear and you begin to have, you know, a kind of just how much can we get attitude mm-hmm. among, the, you know, so they take up Roe versus Wade. Roe versus Wade goes away finally, the political victory has been achieved because you've appointed justices to overturn Roe and Roe is gone. And if you see them basically launching on this, you know, very rigid conservative reform strategy, it's going to be hard to tell the story about them, you know, paying attention or caring much about the fidelity to Roe. I mean, they, you know, they'll have a fidelity to meaning justification, whether you Buy it or not, it'll be there. But whether in the end people can look at the institution not as just another wing of the Republican Party, I think it's going to be hard if that's how they behave. And so So that's why I was a little bit anxious about the future and so very anxious to get the book out before it became irrelevant.
1: Yeah, it does feel like, you know, we are kind of in the era of the death of all norms. And, you know, you even talked about as your example of that, I initially alluded to the, you know, amending the Constitution, that everyone just accepted that if you didn't like the government, you could change it and you didn't have to obey the rules for amendment in the document at one point, you know, that was a norm that everybody just agreed on at the Constitutional Convention. And it kind of feels like we're in the age of the death of all norms. And so maybe that maybe that could happen where courts just become as winner take all as politics, which is terrifying.
3: It it is terrifying. (laughs) You know, the story I tell at the beginning of the book that you're talking about is, you know, for many lawyers, it's familiar, but maybe it's not, you know, to everybody. You know, the fact is that our Constitution was written and adopted against the rules of the then existing constitution. So the then existing constitution, the article of confederation, it said it could be amended if Congress unanimously approves an amendment. Mm -hmm. And sorry, the 13 states unanimously approve an amendment that's been drafted by Congress. And of course, the convention crafted a new constitution. So it wasn't Congress. And it said that that constitution would be valid when nine states, not all states, had ratified it and not all state and not state legislatures, but state conventions. So it broke three separate rules for changing the Articles in Confederation. And so, you know, the fundamental question one needs to start constitutional law thinking about is is our constitution constitutional? And if it is constitutional, this links back to your point about, you know, the constant theme of my work has been to think about what in the context Matters. If it is constitutional, it's because there was in the context this idea that no constitution can ever limit the conditions under which it can be changed. This is what Jefferson talked about when he said the unalienable right to alter or abolish a constitution. That's what the Declaration of Independence said. Mm -hmm. So that view, you know, the claim was was taken for granted or presupposed, at least in a strong enough way to allow them to escape the burdens of the Articles of Confederation. But that lead, you know, that presses the question, well, so what makes that view true? Like why why do people believe it? Or why is it fundamental or taken for granted? And is it anymore? You know, I think most lawyers today would say the way you amend the Constitution is you follow the rules of Article 5. Well that's not what they said. They said, you know, or adopt a new constitution. And I'm not sure where we are on that right now. And lots of people are terrified about it, because there's a very vigorous movement to amend the constitution by creating a convention under Article 5. And a lot of people, especially on the left, you know, basically see that as the same thing that created our original constitution. And that reality terrifies them because Mm -hmm. they fear that what would happen is we would get a convention that would abolish the constitution. And so I don't think that's a true interpretation of article five convention provision. But I do think that it reveals that what we are taking for granted here is really ultimately what's going to drive what the constitution means.
1: Is there like, do you feel like there's something for us to do with fidelity and constraint? Is it helpful and interesting? Or is there like a, we read it and, and there's something for us to take away from it and act on from it?
3: Well, I think that one really important conclusion, especially for lawyers, is to you know take some pride in the institutional capacity of the judiciary and recognize that that capacity comes not from it being partisan in one way or another, but from it seeming to most people like it stands above purely partisan fights.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And I think that truth uh, should drive us towards understanding the really important necessity of preserving that within a democracy. Mm. So that's one important lesson. I think another important lesson, you know, the, the flip side of that is, especially for reformers, we on the left have spent the last 60 years thinking that the way to change the world is to get five votes on the Supreme Court.
4: Hmm. Yeah. You
3: know, the Kind of the Thurgood Marshall model of reform. Now, I don't blame Thurgood Marshall because he actually had a constitutional amendment that uh, had, had you know, people had forgotten about for about 100 years. And so he was pretty good in getting the world to remember that there was that amendment there and it needed to come into force. Hmm. But, but I think that that model, that kind of romance of like that, the, our lawyers standing before the Supreme Court and getting five justices to do the right thing has really weakened democracy hmm. because to the extent we fight our battles for justice and right among lawyers or among judges we don't wage those battles among ordinary citizens among you know the, in the democracy and if we don't wage it in the democracy then it just won't stick you know the idea that you can change a culture through the law alone rather than through the law and you know communities and democratic processes is is you know something i think our history demonstrates absolutely just cannot succeed so what i think the flip side to understanding the importance of protecting the institutional integrity of the court is, is not to imagine that the court can do too much. And that when we have battles about truth and justice and the right thing to do that are really political, we've got to channel them into political spaces and to win them in political spaces. So again, think about the the partisan redistricting case. Mm -hmm. I, I again think, you know, Kagan was right. But part of me thinks I'm kind of happy that we now have to go fight in Congress and get Congress to pass a law that could basically end partisan gerrymandering for Congress absolutely across the country. I like that fact because I'm increasingly optimistic we can win that war. And if we win that war, it'll be much more significant victory than if, you know, Elena Kagan had convinced one more justice to join her and getting the Supreme Court to do it. Like I mean, it, that
1: feels like the conversation probably all of us who are lawyers are having with non-lawyers after that. Like nobody thinks gerrymandering is good, but the Supreme Court's job is to say what the law is, and the law doesn't say anything about this. And that's basically the conclusion. And so, yeah, go lobby, go be active. That's how we fix that.
3: Yes, and we fix that as much by democratic process as by getting the law right. <laughs> I think the third part, the third lesson of this is. You know, constitution was written for a democracy.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: It wasn't written to rule a democracy. Mm. And I think one of the terrible consequences of the last hundred years of constitutional laws, we've allowed it to become too far removed from the ordinary understanding of politicians and the people. And again, part of the reason for that, I think, is that we've professionalized the process of constitution making in the courts because the only way we change the constitution anymore Mm -hmm. is to get five justices to rule on some constitutional question. And so we, we should be much more open to other processes, to bringing, you know, the constitution closer to the people. And, uh, and so that's why I, I'm a big supporter of the Article Five Convention process. That would be one way to do it.
1: Is that where you're going to be focusing your activism over the next few years?
3: Uh, focus is not a word that is you know descriptive of my life. And, <laughs> I mean, I'm certainly going to help. One gets and, that
1: idea from reading your Wikipedia entry.
3: <laughs> yeah, so I'm happy to help. I, I mean, I want to push that understanding, but uh, it's one part of like how we could imagine changing uh, this distance or this gap if we do it right.
1: Before I let you go, maybe one of the most noticeable things about you in your presentations is your slideshow. (laughs) your method of delivering slides You have hundreds of slides that you deliver in a rhythm and on beats and on cues. And I'm sure I'm not the only one who's gotten inspired by it and tried to mimic it. Where did that come from? And what was, what's your goal with doing that?
3: So that actually came from speaking in technology conferences. Mm -hmm. And what I would do is I would, you know, I'd get up and I'd look out and everybody was sitting there looking at their laptop. And so I began to think, what can I do to get them to pay attention? Hmm. And so I realized that the trick to get them to pay attention was to have a constantly moving, changing slideshow um, mm. that you know didn't, unlike most you know PowerPoint or keynote presentations, which you know are basically designed to compete with a speaker. This you know this style is designed to uh, you know complement what I'm trying to say. Amplify, so, honestly, I think. Yeah, right. But but the trick is it's doing it in a way that kind of forces people to pay attention. So, you know, they all look up, they're watching it. These words amplify or complement what I'm saying. And I hope the consequence in the end is like to make deeper people's understanding of what I'm trying to say, because I know that without that, they just would be reading your email or, you know, doing Twitter or something like
1: that. I guess it feels like punctuation of your words. I imagine it takes a while to prepare for those. It takes forever. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) When will your next book be out and remind us of the title?
3: So the next book is uh, They Don't Represent Us. It comes mm-hmm. out in November. And uh, the first part is about you know this core structural problem to our current democracy of unrepresentativeness. And the second part is about, you know, really the problem of who we are in a world where we've got fragmented, polarized media.
1: And if this is some listeners' first encounter with you... Where would you recommend they go to get an introduction? Is there a talk or a book or something that would be the best place for someone to start?
3: Yeah. You know, I think that the uh, TED Talks, the main stage TED Talks that I've done Mm -hmm. are the best ways to sort of get introduced to the work that I'm doing right now. There's one that was not a main stage. It was a TEDx Atlantic or Mid-Atlantic, which was done around 2015, which I think is really the argument behind much of the book. But, you know, I think those I find those are conversations that grab in pretty quickly.
1: And I'll say, yeah, I don't. You are a very entertaining speaker. So nobody will get bored in doing that. So Professor Lessig, thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciated your time.
3: Grateful for you paying attention. Thank you.
0: Are you interested in implementing the ideas you've heard on today's podcast into your law firm? Could you use a little help? Hey, guys, it's Stephanie, the VP of Community Success here at Lawyers. And I'd love to help you tackle your business or take it to the next level. Head over to go.lawyerist.com
3: backslash start to sign up for a quick call with me. And let's talk about how Lawyerist can help you create your best law firm.
0: Make sure to catch next week's episode of the Lawyerist podcast by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. And please leave a rating to help other people find our show. You can find the notes for today's episode on lawyerist.com slash podcast.
1: The Lawyerist podcast is produced with help from Lindsay Calhoun and edited by Paul Fisher. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you.